0: Well, this morning I am talking about human wounding and brokenness and the role of friends or friendship in our processes of healing. And I'm looking at one particular story in the Bible and one particular thread in my life, and it gets a little bit personal. So about a year and a half ago, I spoke about my experience growing up Jewish in a Jewish community with all kinds of embedded anti-Semitism. I talked about how difficult it was for me to talk about um, those kinds of experiences I had as a child, and particularly to talk about the Holocaust. Um, So for example, Over the last probably 40 to 50 years, a number of Holocaust museums have um, sprouted up in our country, including one in the city that I grew up in, and I've never been to any. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that this morning, or at least the impact of it on me. So I read an article recently, and it was by a man who was describing his experience, His father, he learned when he was a kid, was a Holocaust survivor. And his father was a child when he had been in the Holocaust. And um, uh, the uh, person, the man is describing how as a kid, when he learns his dad was a Holocaust survivor, he's constantly saying to him, Dad, can you tell me about it? Can you share some of what your experience was like? And dad, while being present to him as a dad, couldn't talk to uh, him about it. And so, as the kid grew up, um, he said, the man said, I read tons of books, I watched movies, but I, my dad never uh, would talk about it, and at some point, when his dad was in his fifties, um, so probably like fifty years out from his experience, which is kind of typical, he decided he was ready to talk about it, and he consented to giving an interview, and uh, so. The man is, uh, the dad is in the living room, talking to a reporter, it's like a four-hour interview. The son, so the man who's talking about it, is upstairs with his wife and now toddler um, in the bedroom, kind of giving dad space to, to um, have the interview. At some point, the man gets curious enough, so he opens the door to the bedroom, and he just hears two minutes' worth of his dad talking, and he hears this. I said to my mother, I want to go back to my Chow. I said to her, I want to live. I don't want to die. My mother had tears in her eyes. She called my sister. She said, here's the money, go. This was the last time I saw my mother. So here is this man who begged his dad to tell him about his dad's experiences his whole time growing up. He read tons of uh, books, watched movies about the Holocaust, and he finally hears these two minutes, from his dad, and it would take him then another 22 years to have another conversation with his dad, another 22 years before he would listen um, to that interview, the 4-hour interview. And those 22 years later, when they finally did talk about it, when dad had the capacity to deal with it, um, they talked, and they cried, and they wrote a book together. Okay. Got through that part. I very much understand this phenomenon. I understand it theoretically, and I understand it personally, that whatever our wounding is, whatever you and I have sustained to this date, it helps and it heals to talk about it. But I also understand that it's not that simple. So in my best layman's terms, I would say that we have evolved with all kinds of protective mechanisms that allow us to say stay distant and distinct from memories, feelings, what some theorists would call parts or parts of ourselves until we're ready. And I would say that ready is tricky. Like ready for what? Ready may be more like an onion slowly peeling off, layer by layer. So by time I gave my talk um, a year and a half ago, I had been through some counseling, gotten to the point where I didn't feel acute anxiety approaching the experiences. And just to be clear, my parents were not Holocaust survivors. My parents Uh, parents escaped the pogroms at the turn of the century, and so they grew up with the uh, anti-Semitism. They would say they spent those years of the war with their ears glued to the radio, listening as six million of their brothers and sisters were killed. Um, But I did grow up in a sanctuary city, and we did have the most Holocaust survivors of anywhere, with the exception of Tel Aviv. Um, So I had had some counseling, done some work with it, but clearly I had and still have a ways to go. Any of you who have things that are uh, painful, things that you're trying to heal from in your life, you know that it's not once and done. As we gain capacity, we open ourselves up to meet the next opportunity for deeper healing. So this morning, I will assume that there's always more opportunities for us to get healing. I'll be looking at especially the relationship of friendship and healing and ask what you and I might do to prepare ourselves for what that next opportunity might be. And our story comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening on the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But because I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So I want to take a moment, make a few observations, quick observations, um, the story that has become familiar to a number of us, and then focus in on one of them. So, number one, the writer starts out by calling Capernaum Jesus' home. We are used to thinking of Nazareth as Jesus' home. Um, this is Capernaum is becomes Jesus' home base after he's driven out of Nazareth, and you can read about that um, in Luke chapter four. Um, number two. Jesus by now is obviously a phenomenon. I've been around the religious landscape for a while now, and you don't get a not-even-standing-room-only turnout, right? Not-even-standing-room in the house, not-even-standing-room around the house, um, unless everybody from near and far is showing up, and this is something you don't want to miss. Number three, the religious leaders are there seemingly as a way, looking for a way to trap Jesus. Number four, it would be meaningful, right, for four friends to carry another adult on a mat, climb up on top of a roof, dismantle enough of a roof of a home not belonging to any of them, get your friend safely down. Like, this is a bold move. Number five, Jesus forgives a man's sin, which I don't think means that the sin is responsible for his physical condition, but might be a first century way of saying, friend, there is nothing between you and God, which we might see as a lovely blessing and a first century religious leader might see as Jesus claiming to have authority that God alone has, which is... Very good news if you're trying to trap Jesus. And finally six, Jesus senses what the leaders are thinking and says essentially, okay, if this is upsetting you, I can just heal him and he does. So lots to ponder in this story. And it's a wonderful story But I want to talk about point number four. I'm interested in the relationship of the five men, four who are carrying, one who's on the mat. And I'm curious what it takes to have that kind of relationship that you will carry this guy, try not to break your own neck or anyone else's, climb onto this roof, also you can get your friend to Jesus. And I'm curious about what it would take to recognize an opportunity like this for you or your friend. And I'm curious about the prohibitions that everyone has to uh, get past to make this happen. So some of you were here when we said goodbye to Kevo, a long-term sanctuary member who's been, uh, had a big part in our church's transformation, our transition to a full inclusion. Um, but that week when Kevo was leaving, um, James spoke about Juneteenth and then Kevo spoke about his time at Sanctuary and what it had meant to him. And I used the remaining time to just say a couple words about liberation. And I had one sentence in my little talk that talked about, where I talked about, growing, I said something like having grown up in Skokie, this uh, Jewish community where I was Uh, still unable to purchase property in a certain corner of my town where I was unable to join the country club, which my daughter-in-law, who is African-American, grew up in Skokie a generation after me, told me, so was Michael Jordan, so I do feel like I'm in good company. Um, But I said something like, Because of that, I can't tolerate exclusionary practices. But as I said just a sentence, that I had gone over at home and practiced, but as I said that when I was preaching, something happened inside that I wasn't anticipating, so I was sort of caught off guard, and it was like an unexpected uh, feeling, almost like a, a part of me saying, you're darn right. You'll never be a part of an exclusionary practice again. Some kind of internal echo, I felt it, I didn't recognize it, but I knew something had shifted and I said to Tom later that day, um, I, I said, I had this funny reaction when I said that sentence and I described it to him and I said, I kind of feel like I'm ready to talk in more detail about my childhood, about what that was like, though I wasn't really sure what I meant when I said that. That Sunday we left on vacation um, for a week, and we, uh, we were going to be with friends who we have known, uh, Tom since college and me since almost college. So early on in our trip, We're sitting around a dinner table, the four of us, and Tom says, Why don't you talk now? (laughs) Now, up until that moment, I had no idea that I was being carried by friends. I had no clue that they would dismantle a roof for me and set me at Jesus' feet. I looked at Tom, kind of panicked, um, and while I'm looking panicked. I don't know if he saw me, looked panicked, and continued to explain why I was going to start talking about my childhood and was ignoring the panic, or maybe he didn't see it. Maybe he just looked at our friends and was explaining to them, oh yeah, 80's never done this, but she feels like she might be ready now. And so I thought, this could be a good time for her to talk. And I'm like super anxious, and, and there's this long pause Where I have this internal chatter, I mean, think about it. What would your internal chatter be at that moment? Like, can I take up this much time and just talk about myself? Can I even handle telling these stories? Like, am I going to spontaneously combust or something? Like, what's going to happen? Will my friends think that I'm self-absorbed and entitled if I just talk about myself like this? And then I did it. I just started talking. And talking, and talking, and talking. And one story led to another story. And my friends were asking great, curious, open-ended questions that we've learned are the kinds of questions that are helpful in these uh, moments. Not that I'm used to having these moments every day in my life. Uh, And then after I'd been talking for a really long time, um, I must have had one of those, like, okay, I think I'm done, moments, wide-eyed, and very connected to everything that I had just been talking about. And one of my friends said, we could pray with you, Aidy. And I tried to respond, but instead found myself sobbing in an uncharacteristic way with my friends at Jesus' feet. So that evening turned out to be one of the more healing, albeit unexpected moments of my life, and enough to make me think about and ponder what exactly happened. So I'd like to suggest a few things that allowed us to get to that place, and I'm just dividing them into three categories. The first, being attuned to yourself. The second, being attuned to others and your friends, and the third is being attuned to Jesus. So being attuned to ourselves, in our story, the man could not deny or escape his situation. He's paralyzed. But we can guess at his inner chatter. Nobody really cares about me. I'm not really lovable. This happened to me because of my sin or my parents' sin. God has forsaken me. We're always invited to recognize our inner chatter, those random thoughts that go through our mind and tell us a lot about what we really believe. Meditation practices, silent prayer can be really helpful in knowing our inner world. When your goal is silence or stillness, it is pretty easy to hear the thoughts that pull you away. And it can become a practice just to follow those thoughts a little bit and to see where they lead or where they come from as we identify those unhealed parts of us that might be crying out some people journal for the same reason some people get counseling or spiritual direction but the point is we are invited to pay attention to ourselves like I noticed something happened I'm standing up here i'm I'm giving a talk, I'm not expecting to be particularly connected to the sentence, and something happened that I witnessed and took note of. Number two, be attuned to others. I have a few thoughts, but I just say form long-term relationships. It is really the best gift that we can give ourselves. We don't get the details of the Five men in the story. I always wish this, the scriptures like would flesh things out and give us the... Right, come on, tell us a little more here. But we can imagine that likely they've known each other for a while. There seems to be a desperation that could be born out of love and a deep sense of commitment like we will go to crazy lengths for you. I felt that with my friends, like talking about me for an hour. That is awkward. Think about it. (laughs) Picture yourself with a group of friends, and one of them says, by the way, maybe you could talk about this hardest thing you ever had to go through in your life for about an hour, and we're just going to listen and ask you good, curious, open-ended questions. I felt like I'm talking too much. I felt like um, I needed I wanted to say, okay, now tomorrow, Tom will take his hour, and then the next day, so we're going to be equal in the amount of time we're all taking to talk about ourselves. I had to resist the feeling of feeling needy or special, or admit that I am needy and special, because we are all needy and special. I think the longest standing prayer group that we um, have had in our church uh, was a group of guys who prayed regularly for like 18 years. At that point, you're really going to be there for your friends. There are a couple families in our church who have uh, dinner every week together, and they have since like forever. Um, there is no right way of doing this, and we're all different. But we want people in our lives who love us desperately and boldly. We want people in our lives who we feel like, I would do anything for you. Like I'll plug prayer groups for just a moment and say, if you're interested in joining with a small group of people who share and pray, regularly for each other, talk to um, any of the staff, and we'll help try to put something like that together. It can be a a life changer. Um, Number two, loving intentionally and boldly. In my case, it was simple. Tom said, Why don't you share about that stuff you mentioned, honey? But it was a bold move. On Tom's part, it was both saying to me implicitly, come on, you can do it, this will be good for you, which sometimes works. Any of you who are partnered know sometimes your partner can get away with that, and sometimes not, so it's risky. And it was presuming on our friends I wish we got the details again about the stories with the five men. I wish we knew if people tried to stop the men when they started climbing on the roof. Were there rule keepers in the crowd who were yelling at them, you should have gotten here early if you're that desperate? Was there a near miss? where they almost dropped the guy and everybody shudders? What we know is that Jesus welcomes everyone. Let the little children come to me and don't hold them back because theirs is the kingdom of God. There is no harsh rebuke as the man is lowered. Jesus sees their desperation, recognizes their faith, and blesses them. We don't know what the friends wanted or what the man wanted. We are assuming Healing, but maybe they all believed that the man was suffering because of sin and forgiveness was what they were looking for. Or maybe they were holding their breath, waiting for every good and perfect thing from above for their friend. Whatever it was, Jesus met them with kindness. Be attuned to your friends. Honestly, I still get anxious reading stories, fiction or not, about the Holocaust. I will plug a new book that's just been translated from French called The Postcard, which I just read and is absolutely amazing story of a French woman whose grandparents and great grandparents were lost to the Holocaust, whom my lovely daughter Cassie uh, told me to read and was really one of the best things I've um, ever read. Um, But I still get anxious, um, even though it's nothing like it used to be because I'm up here saying all this. Um, But I was anxious as I was sharing some of my craziness of growing up in what was both a sanctuary city and a city embedded with anti-Semitism. But my friends were completely attuned to me. They responded to me with empathy. As I shared, they cried as I cried. I could tell they wanted to, you know, they weren't like looking at their, she's been talking for about 25 minutes here. I could tell that they were with me. And of course, number five, the gift of Jesus. You know, we got to the end of my sharing. It's kind of fun to talk about yourself for an hour. <laughs> and uh, my friend Maria said, "Ade, would it be okay if we prayed for you? Now, this was not such a bold ask on Maria's part. We've known each other for about 40 years and have prayed together during most of those four decades. As I said, I didn't have the chance to say yes or no because from some very deep place inside where my four-year-old self and my six-year-old self and my eight-year-old self still live, I just started sobbing. It was the kind of sobbing that you never do in public on purpose, Um, especially not with your husband and couple sitting right next to you and across the table from you, the kind of sobbing that makes everybody scatter and look for Kleenex. I don't know how long I sobbed or how deep I cried. I don't know all that was healed in that moment. But I do know what it's like to be stuck in some way, to not exactly have a way forward, to have someone I love recognize that, and see an opportunity, and to get our friends to put me on a mat, and to climb, on top of a completely non-sturdy roof and slowly and carefully lower me to Jesus' feet. Uh, I don't know what all of you carry inside, but if we are honest, we all carry something, some things, Our story invites us to cultivate those deep relationships that when the opportunities arise, we're there for each other. Amen.